This is Candy Minks in Chicago for the Agency Podcast. And Eugene Napik in Toronto. Hi, Eugene. Hi, Candy. How's it hey, going? It's going really good. good. How are you? Good, good. I think we have another fun week here for everyone. Uh, yes, we do. And uh, this is a, a special themed uh, episode this week. Mm-hmm. Started because we both saw the film Stillwater. Yes. And... Stillwater is a story which the director has said publicly was inspired by the Amanda Knox story. Mm -hmm. And so it got us thinking about the Amanda Knox story. And of course, Amanda Knox has chimed in and commented about about the film. Um, And, you know, when we were looking at that, that story, we couldn't ignore that there was a satanic panic uh, element to it and right. so we thought we better we better contact our satanic panic correspondent here at the agency yes uh, sarah elliott who uh who operates the swallowing the camel uh blog and you can uh visit sarah's blog at swallowing the camel dot me that's right uh, and, and, um... and it's an excellent place if you want <laughs> to follow up in detail on uh, conspiracies mm-hmm. of all varieties. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah researches uh, tremendously well and has a, a really uh, a, a really clear and forceful approach at uh, at looking at these things and, and yes. debunking many things too. And debunking a lot of things. She's um, very reliable, very energetic, and she does a lot of work that we don't have to do and comes back and tells us. And this is her second visit with us, and I, I won't be surprised if there isn't another one. So I hope everyone really enjoys it. So we're going to go right now to uh, to the interview. We didn't know if this was going to be a short interview or a long interview, right. but it was so interesting, it's become an entire episode. Right. I wanted to put one thing in there. I, I want to acknowledge Meredith Kocher and that um, it's a terrible loss. Um, we don't know everything. And my husband said perhaps Amanda Knox should stop talking so much. I just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay, just before we go, yeah. uh, we'd like to know what, what you oh, think yeah. about this. Yes. So so please email us at uh, theagency.podcast at gmail.com. Hi, we're here today with Sarah Elliott from Swallowing the Camel blog. And we're here to talk about the Amanda Knox story. And this came up because both Candy and I had seen the film Stillwater which the director has pointed out was inspired by the Amanda Knox story. And once the movie came out, um, Amanda Knox tweeted the following, by fictionalizing away my innocence, my total lack of involvement, by erasing the role of the authorities in my wrongful conviction, McCarthy reinforces an image of me as a guilty and untrustworthy person. What do you all think of that? Wow. Well, welcome, Sarah. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Good to be back. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I have an opinion. Do you have any thoughts just coming right off the top? Uh, Yeah, my my first thought about this was that as unfortunate as it is, I mean, the story uh, has become everybody's story. Mm. 
and so many people have the right to tell it, it, it really is public domain, right? I mean, we Definitely. all know it. We all kind of lived it. So many people were involved. Yeah. It's hard to get, she never had control of her own narrative with this. She never got to lead the story and she's never going to. True. And never you know, I don't see it very different than Law and Order always says, you know, they always, they'll say it's not, they'll say ripped from the headlines, but it's not right. based on any true case. And um, also this isn't the first time that a story, um, that there's been a parent trying to get their child out of another country that's imprisoned. It's actually, once people were traveling and young people had the, the money and the education to travel to different countries, we've had all kinds of um, court cases, whether it's being busted for drugs or um, murder. It, it's it's going right. to be something with travel. Yeah, um, uh, actually yeah. that's a huge part of this narrative is sort of the, um, I think some people used it as kind of a scarce scare story uh yeah, you know absolutely. this is what happens when you let your girls travel abroad it's like right, the tv right. show banged up abroad or you know some of the shows that show the horrors of foreign prisons you know are right. you really going to let your kids go overseas to backpack right. or right well that is a big deal i know you're going to say something eugene i just thought right now we might quickly want to say the amanda knock story is about a woman who was she says she was wrongly convicted of a of a, of a murder of her roommate <laughs> It became a media story around the world. And then Stillwater builds off of that. It is a father who goes to a European country from the United States to try and um, help his daughter get out of prison. Would that be fair to say? I think that's that's fair to say. Um, the only point I wanted to make to add to mm -hmm. um, what both of you were saying about uh, basically the story being fair game is that the director of Stillwater, McCarthy, mm -hmm. didn't have to say that it was inspired by the Amanda Knox story. No, he, he said it publicly in order to use that story in order to increase the profitability of his film. And to that end, I have a little bit of sympathy. I, I would agree. And I think so many people have done that with this case. It really mean, has been a, a money maker and a career maker for so many So sure. you mean as, you mean sympathy for the the for Amanda McNox, not yes. for the film. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Yeah. Just because he went out of his way to say that yes. this, that his story, which is sorta like her story. I mean it's similar themes, but it's not the same story. No. Right. No, it's not the same story. And I have, I'm okay with either way. I probably wouldn't have said that, but I do think you're right that it was to probably get more people interested in watching it. Having said that, I think that's also fair game. Everyone's entitled to say that this is a story sure. based on that and to get you it. I think that, I think it's a very good movie. I just want to say that. And I know Sarah, maybe you haven't seen it, but I actually thought it was a very good movie and very good writing. There were a couple parts I didn't, feel held up that got a little bit quiet and weaker for me but in general I thought it was a very intriguing script and a suspenseful movie in some ways I loved the setting the location and the premise and um, I totally forgot about Amanda Knox it's nothing like her um, I thought it was interesting that she says that her likeness and her name are taken um, into this film and I um, I want to speak more about that later maybe later on it when we get going um, and I think we've kind of touched base here, but I, I actually thought it was a very well uh, scripted movie. And I like the way that 
the characters revealed what was going on slowly but surely. I thought that was pretty cool. And um, and as well, strong performances. Um, uh, Matt Damon playing a much different sort of character than yes. than we know him for. I mean, he's not being chased by the CIA and blowing <laughs> stuff up or anything. That is true. And I think also they did show a little bit about the media. For me, this was a perfect storm story, um, the Amanda Knox story. First, you have the media horror situation of media dying to get um, sell those those tabloid copies. And then you have a what, you know, I'm going from other people we know in blogging from Italy who have said that the Italian the criminal system can have these kind of um, dramas play out or maybe, maybe yes or no, it's not the same as in the United States. And second, I think Amanda Knox was also part of that perfect storm. So that's where I would set off. And I'd like to hear what you have to say and what you've studied about the, the media reaction and this, the prosecutor well, I first uh, came into this because of the media. Um, uh -huh. I felt that they really aggressively got this story into the open, and I couldn't really understand why at first. I thought, you know, it's kind of kind of interesting. I mean, you have a student murder where other students might be involved. That's slightly unusual. Mm -hmm. um, it isn't even remotely unusual for college roommates, even female college roommates, to uh, attack or kill one another. There have been several cases in the States, uh, even around the same time as this. But what, what struck me as really most peculiar were the way the headlines were phrased. And I think the first one I came across was in The Independent. I tracked it down because I, I was mm -hmm. really curious about where I first came into this story. And this was the headline from The Independent, uh, just, just a few days after the murder of Meredith Kircher. Mm -hmm. uh, student killed because she refused orgy. Oh. Wow, that's a, that's quite a uh, inflamed statement, isn't it? Such such a loaded, and it doesn't even really hit you at first. Oh, a refused orgy, and then you think, wait, 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 no, this this girl is dead. Generally, when people are killed in their own homes, which she was, mm -hmm. she was mm -hmm. alone in her own home. She was mm -hmm. killed by an, at least one intruder, mm -hmm. one intruder in my view. Mm -hmm. Um. We generally don't call that an orgy gone wrong. <laughs> we tend to just call that a murder and, and a sexual assault, right? Mm -hmm. we, we never say that that's an orgy gone wrong or a sex game gone wrong. But th those were the first headlines and a lot of them were very similar to this. And I remember thinking, what is going on over there? Right. So I Googled it. I wanted to read even more stories about it. And I finally came across the name of the prosecutor, Giuliano Menini. And that is when red flags just soared into the air, like millions of them for me. And I knew three things right away. I knew that these kids were going to be in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I knew that a satanic angle was going to be introduced <laughs> at some point in the future, mm -hmm. because that was Manini's pattern. And you were familiar with him already. I, I unfortunately was, yeah. Okay. The, the name just set off so many alarm bells. and. Uh, I knew that it was going to get a lot worse. Oh. It was it was going to get weirder, and it certainly did. <laughs> right. um, the reason, of course, and I, I don't want to get too deeply into this because it's a little off topic, but mm. Menini's background was as um, a guy who really likes his conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Like, he's an intelligent man. He's a magistrate, which in Italy has quite a lot of power. Uh, he does have superiors. Um, 
but he is basically in charge of cases that come under his control. Like he, he makes the final call, is this gonna go to trial or not? He's kind of like a cross between a public prosecutor and a DA. Like he, okay. he has quite a lot of influence. With a penchant for satanic panic. <laughs> Well, he truly is. I mean, he came up with it. just a little sample. He decided in the 80s and 90s and 2000s that he had solved the unsolved monster of Florence case, which was a case very much like our David Berkowitz or our Zodiac case in the States where a man was going around shooting into the parked cars of lovers. He killed 16 people in a very short amount of time. Not a short amount of time. It actually spread out a bit more, but it was a very famous unsolved series of murders. And Menini was not living in Florence, but one of his favorite suspects had died in Florence. He had it was a doctor who had drowned. Mm. So Menini kind of used that as a as a wedge to get into this famous case and kind of make a name for himself, I think. So was he a publicity, or is he a publicity hound? He really seems like it. And given the number of leaks involved with uh, with the Knox and Selecito case, you really have to wonder, like, was how much of this came from the top, right? Mm. Was this really just low-level people trying to make a buck off the tabloids, or was this a strategy? Was this part of the prosecution strategy? Anyway... So we have on one on one hand he was fanning the flames yes. and at the same time uh, i think she was exhibiting odd behavior which also made it into the exactly media. and this is where the perfect storm idea that you mentioned candy is is very true it was a perfect storm you have a guy who's very prone to conspiracy theorizing he had already tried to solve the monster of florence case by saying mm -hmm. that a satanic cult possibly connected with freemasonry had gotten together to perpetrate all of these murders. And he had actually had one of his, his, his favorite suspect, the man who had drowned on his turf, uh, exhumed, which is a very expensive wow. process. You have to go through quite a lot to make that happen. And uh, obviously it's not something you wanna do unless you have to, you're gonna- no, and, and it also uh, it attracts media like uh, flypaper attracts Absolutely, flies. absolutely. And he, uh, Went, went to town with it. He had this big exhumation to prove the whole point behind the exhumation was that he thought there had been a body swap, that the satanic cult might have actually beaten Dr. Navarro to death, but then drowned another guy and put him in the coffin. Whoa. This is how oh. weird this got, yeah. right? Yeah. So when Navarro was dug up and turned out to be Dr. Navarro, Menini said, oh, well, you know, maybe after I said I was going to exhume the body, they got in there then and swapped the body. Okay. <laughs> Again, a double swap. A double so swap, it, it of course. Just, it got so weird. So weird. So this is the guy who's coming into the Knox case. Right. He's already saying weird things about orgies and, and drugs. He talked a lot about this being a drug-fueled crime, even right. though there were no hard drugs found. The kids uh -huh. all admitted to using hash uh -huh. and marijuana uh -huh. and nothing else. Right. Well, it's not unlike, I, I, there's some offense I thought when Michael K. Williams died from the wire, they said he was found with drug paraphernalia. And for me, that was completely inappropriate. What, was he smoking a bong? You better yeah. say what it is or don't mm. say it because right. you're starting right. a rumor mill. Now, I'm not going to be, you know, yeah. I'm just saying later, that's not right. Uh, later, there was some 
clarity on that that suggested that um, he was known to have uh, a heroin issue. For sure. I get that. But you know, when you do that, you're, you're leaving it out there. You really, you really want to be fine tuned that I think. So, you you know, I think that that, you know, definitely there in Italy or in 2007 in the United States, we might've said it was drug involved because of, of marijuana. Uh, People who don't like marijuana would consider that drugs fuel i think yeah and squares yeah. and and old school would <laughs> right. would think that right conservative people would consider that outrageous yes. manini yeah. for some reason thought that people would find it credible maybe he found it credible that yeah. you could smoke a little bit of hash and then just go out and have this satanic orgy because oh, right. you're so you're so high right well geez you think in my neighborhood where there's a uh uh, cannabis shop about every three blocks. I mean, there must be a lot of satanic orgies going on around here. <laughs> yeah, and I think I some people, some people don't. Uh, you know, some people aren't couch potatoes when they get high on pot. Most people, yeah, I think the stereotype is you're laid back, you just want to get some munchies and make out or something. You know, I get that, but um, I think um, there's the odd case where perhaps I don't know, but perhaps I think all of it is just. It, you're right, though. It's kind of like the um, with the athletes when there is pot really a performance enhancing drug. We should, if it is, you better start telling us. You better prove it and, and stuff yeah. because you're you're stopping people's athletic careers on this. Yeah, and it, I mean it's, it's kind of ridiculous to suggest it's a performance enhancing drug, isn't it? I mean, aside from having some mild medicinal effects, you know, I mean, the more likely right. effect is, wow, man, is there a race? Yeah. However, I, I've seen angry, high pot smokers, jealous, bitter. Um, there's a lot of anger with pot usage. That's, there can it, be. There well, really that, can that's be. That's true. It's not a uniform no. Um, no. reaction to the drug. No, right. it's, true. It's, it's a painkiller just like anything else like alcohol. So if you have already issues, they're not going to go away. They're going to be there manifest with that. So I'm just, sort of, I, I guess I'm playing the devil's advocate because I'm probably the only person here that still feels like Amanda Knox had something to do with it. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's interesting, but I think that, um, yeah, I think that was used, that, that narrative kind of shifted. At first yeah. it was, well, yeah. it was, it fueled them into having sex and then they right. were worked up because of that. Right. That led to the orgy, but then the theories changed. Then it yes. became a ritualistic thing because mm-hmm. of the proximity to Halloween and because of some violent uh, occult or horror manga that uh, okay. Raphael Selecito had in his apartment. That was interpreted as, as signs that maybe these were occultists. That mm-hmm. was dropped prior to trial. It was brought okay. up at one pre-trial hearing, but I think that it all came from Manini, but I think his co-prosecutor, uh, Komodi, I believe her name is, nixed it and said, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna carry that into trial. It's too mm-hmm. weird. Like we don't need it. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna benefit us in any way. But did they have very much real evidence to convict her? Uh, the DNA evidence that was used against Raphael, I, I don't think it was there was watched, any... wasn't it? Wasn't there I a think... problem with the DNA? That's that... why they were. That's why they were acquitted. That's ultimately why they were acquitted. Yes. Because it... when they resubmitted it for testing at the final trial, it was rejected. They said, you know, there's too little of this. To, to form a reasonable conclusion and it, it never was good as evidence it probably so. never was but i will say 
coincidentally, Eugene, Amanda Knox's DNA and Meredith Kocher's DNA were on a knife inside of his apartment, not at their apartment where they live. So, and it was seemed to be blood sourced. Right. Um, so that is kind of where things got out of hand. Um, or did they? Um, but that, somebody could have cut themselves making a sandwich. And then lent him the knife. Yes, you're right. He, she could have, Amanda Knox could have taken her kitchen knife. He didn't have one. Um, her roommate and her cut their, their, their selves on that knife. And then they lent that knife to her boyfriend. So that is true. I, mean, I agree with that. It's possible. possible. Another, another very strange thing about the knife is that um, the prosecutors were always very adamant that this was not premeditated, that this was a spontaneous rage. Right, right. Sex, right. drug, sex, drug, rock and roll kind of crime. <laughs> so it seems kind of weird that if you're just hanging around having an orgy, you're just going to happen to have your boyfriend's kitchen knife in your house. Right. You're just going to bring it with you. Right. For yeah. Random reason. Yeah. Never made sense. No, it, it doesn't make sense. That is that is true. But I do, I do want to get into, though, Candy, what yeah. what really formed your impressions of Knox's possible guilt. And do you think that that Selecito was guilty as well? Well, I hate to take away your insight. You know, I hate to take away from the fact that I, I, I think the media and the tabloids were wrong. I think that the prosecutor was wrong with his belief system. However, I don't think the Italian detectives or the Italian law system was any worse or archaic or crazy than any other legal system I, so i'm kind of on the you know what i mean and i think that the yeah. tabloids were just as bad as they always are yeah um and yeah. so I, i'm not i think that i wouldn't want to just i wouldn't want to make her innocent because this guy believed in satanic panic um right. so i'm almost going from the opposite i didn't know the satanic stuff i didn't know that that i never i don't think that really ever i noticed that when i followed the case and I probably didn't follow it as close as other people. Um, for me, I once I watched the Amanda Knox story, um, I just thought there was a lot of interesting things that you know people do tell us who they are, and they hint towards it. And sometimes it's unconscious. I, I wouldn't want me to ever be on a jury because I don't <laughs> think I'm a good person to be on a jury. Why do I think she did it? Because I think the little cuts on on Meredith Coacher's body were made by a female and a pissed off female. And I think that although it's unfair to stereotype women, it's not unfair to be honest about how catty and competitive and judgy and bitchy women can be, especially young women living together. And I think that they probably did have an attraction. They may have experimented. And I think that there are accounts of Meredith thinking that Amanda Knox was promiscuous, for lack of a better yeah. word. And I think that there's probably a lot of tension in there. There's a, I, I watched a bunch of video um, by this guy who analyzed, um, he, he reads body language. And I think he ultimately said there wasn't enough that he could, as a studied body language analyst, and he keeps reminding people it's only at the best 70% helpful and accurate. But he had lots of reasons to say why Amanda Knox wasn't lying to Diane Sawyer in, in interviews per se, but he did confirm feelings that I would say 
I felt were a feeling of entitlement and contempt. Um, and he said she does have the, the competence of an American, a young American to feel that they are independent and able to do whatever they want. And I think that that's why part, the real reason why I find this case interesting is because there is that feeling of American, America versus Europe. And there, I do think that's where, why they threw them out of jail was that they were so sick of the uh, PR insulting mm -hmm. Italy. They just wanted those, they just wanted her out of their country. Please leave yeah. for me. Yeah, I, I, you know, I really regret not regret, but I'm very sorry that this became an indictment of of the Italian judicial system because I don't think that Italy's justice system is in any way to blame for this. I do think there were some issues um, in Perugia and surrounding areas with mm -hmm. different cases, but that's true in the states too. Totally. In fact, this this case was almost terrifyingly similar to a case that happened in Norfolk, Virginia, <laughs> Virginia in the late '90s, where four different naval officers were accused of killing one woman in a very similar scenario to how Meredith Kircher was killed. Really? It was a home invasion. Uh, she was killed. I can't remember the means how she was murdered, but it was a very violent death. It did involve a sexual assault, just as with Meredith. Yeah. And uh, these four men all confessed. One man was very convinced that he did it. But then a fifth man, actually an eighth, but that's a long story, a fifth man came into the picture and was the real killer. Wow. And he was absolutely astonished that all these other men had confessed to a crime that he committed. He wow. was he was floored. He said, why would they do that? And during that investigation, um, the investigators had worked up a theory that it was a druidic sacrifice because <laughs> one of the men was really interested in history and, and had an interest in druidism. So they kind of thought, oh, maybe it was a ritual sacrifice. But they had all these people crammed into this uh, very small apartment without leaving evidence. And you, it's, you find the same thing in the Knox case, uh, the Knox Selechitoad case, where, um, you know, Rudy, the real killer, in, in my view, Rudy Gaudet, yes. his DNA was all over this tiny little room that Meredith was in. This was a right. nine by 11 room that was just saturated with her blood and his DNA. It was in her body. It was on her body. Yeah, it, it was just everywhere. But I there do wasn't... think he did kill her. I do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's really no dispute. He's the right. only person who right. disputes that. Right. And his yes. lawyer. Um, yes. His lawyers even sued people for saying he's the only killer, but he is, uh, in my view. Right. Anyway, no DNA from anyone else. I mean, there there was other DNA, unidentified DNA in the room, but there was none from Amanda or Raphael, which is really bizarre. Because even if they came in with bleach, as the prosecution alleged, you're mm -hmm. not going to know where you left DNA Correct. in your own crime scene. You're not going to be able to selectively clean just those areas that you touched when you're when a girl is fighting for her life right. and you're all over the room. Right. So I never really, that part of the story didn't make sense either. And there were just so many elements that didn't make sense. Another huge red flag for me, which ties into what you were saying about, you know, women can be very catty and very um you know these things can really escalate mm -hmm. that was a big part of the narrative but mm -hmm. um the red flag for me was that she was portrayed as the ringleader <laughs> i found really hard to believe you have three people four people at one time accused of a violent atrociously a violent sex crime and a home invasion mm -hmm. faked home invasion supposedly um 
I don't think that a foreigner, a girl who barely knows the language, is going to come in and sexually and emotionally and physically dominate two men that she barely knows. She had known Raphael for one week. Mm -hmm. They had been dating for one week. She knew Rudy. Well, she claims she doesn't know him at all. She didn't even know his name. But they did meet on one or two occasions mm -hmm. in a sort of a casual way. Uh, it, it seems really unlikely to me that she would be able to totally manipulate these two men and say, you know, I hate my roommate. We're going to go in there and we're going to mess her up and we're going to rob her. And, you know, if things get out of hand, that's cool. I just, it's yeah. very hard to believe. Yeah, I could see at a pub, this bitch, she turned, she, she's pissing me off. She's calling me a slut. And he's like, yeah, I don't like her either. Um, and she's like, oh, I could just kill her. And Rudy's saying, oh, well, I'll do it. I mean, I could see it that casually. I'm not saying that's what happened. I, I can see scenarios where it could happen with, depending on the personality of the young people. The hardest part for me to understand is that the um, Raphael, because he does seem, he comes across as being fairly much like a shut-in, a computer geek and shy, perhaps. So he's the odd one in, in, in the scenario for me. Um, like I say, I feel like some of those, some of the story does seem like it, but uh, that she would be capable, but the disintegrating DNA, the lack of evidence, I understand that. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what do you, so you said something, you said two things really interesting to me. First, you said, generally there aren't, students don't kill. Oh, there have been cases. Right, but um, you said it's very unusual culturally for that to be a part. The, Would the you say cases, that? The, I wouldn't say it's too, super okay. unusual. There have been oh, okay. several, several interesting cases. And I say they're interesting because they kind of show us what the Kircher case would have looked like mm -hmm. if it had been a more traditional roommate murder case. Right. And I think what we would have seen uh, in these cases in the States, and I'm, unfortunately I don't have names, but they're all fairly recent cases where one female roommate killed another. Um, usually, not necessarily premeditated killings, but very violent. Mm -hmm. And these were always um, escalating situations where you had, and they always involved prior crimes. So usually what would happen is one roommate would find out that the other had stolen her identity or stolen <laughs> money from her. Single uh, white female. <laughs> right. In one case, um, a girl had been sexually assaulted by the other's boyfriend and the, the, the couple did not want her to go to the police so they killed her right so with the Knox and Selecito and and G'day even you don't really see any escalating behavior I mean there definitely were some little typical roommate conflicts like you don't flush the toilet often enough you don't mop up often enough you're loud you're noisy you know you make too much noise with your guitar. There were, there were a lot of little irritable things that were getting on each other's nerves at that point. But you don't see any history of, of instability with Amanda Knox. You don't see any history of really aggressive conflict with other people. She didn't have any sort of criminal record. Um, Selecito, actually, weirdly enough, comes across as probably the shadiest character in the whole thing. <laughs> Just because of little comments he had made online in previous years, like when he was going to school at an all-boys school in Perugia in the city, he said, 
that the only resident he admired was a serial killer who had also gone to the same school. Kind That's of an a odd curious statement. Um, I'm super yeah. creeped out by that right now. <laughs> right, he was he was a little, he was a little darker than anybody else involved in this. Interesting. Like he was a little, and even with Gaudet, uh the real killer, um, in my view, <laughs> I might get sued. I don't know. No, that's okay. I, 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 and I'm team team. I see it as a triad. <laughs> <laughs> Me and the Italian um, prosecutor. I, I want to go for dinner with him. I mean, I don't want him to prosecute me, but he was, um, when you watch him in interviews and in that documentary, he, I want to go out and hang out with him. He's pretty crazy. He's, he's a very smart guy and he, he is quite the imagination. Well, you know what's what's curious is that yeah. often when it seems that when people start bringing out the satanic panic stories, mm. it's in a situation where nobody knows really what happened. There's a big mystery and it's a big a mystery to everybody. Yeah. And so you look for something that will explain it. And yes. if you get a crazy enough conspiracy theory maybe it can explain away all the details but in okay. this case it's the actual prosecutor who's going there and it's as opposed to the media or some some reporter who's been ignored by his paper or something like that and what's so bizarre is that it didn't really have to be that way like you say he's driving that narrative because it didn't have to enter the story at all it was a pretty open and shut case you know, what floors me about it is that the same people who, in my view, wrongly convicted Selegito and Knox are the same people who solved the case. They also caught Rudy. I mean, they also got the guy who actually did it. Right. And it's a very simple case of a guy who had a history of, he didn't have a criminal record yet, but he did, he was known for- so Was, he, was he charged? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. 16 he was years. Okay. He got 16 years. Amanda Knox got 26 years. Yeah, he didn't fight it. He went for a fast track trial and didn't really, um, which automatically comes with a reduced sentence because you're relieving the taxpayers of, of mm. the time and money it would take to really fight your case. And, and implies guilt. It kind of, kind of does, but not really. I mean, he was still asserting his innocence as he does to this day, but, you know, he just chose to do it in a different way. He didn't chose to, choose to fight it as aggressively as the others did. Um, but what was, yeah, what was really strange about it is that, uh, you know, it was such a simple case. It was a break-in where I think the timeline seems to be, he broke into this cottage because everybody was away. It was a bank holiday. He thought it would be empty. He thought, Hey, there's foreigners living here. There's going to be cash lying around. It's going to be a bonanza. I can just scoop up. He, I don't think that he liked <laughs> to take goods that he would have to fence because mm -hmm. it was a small town and you know, he would have to go out of town to do that. But he was looking for cash, valuables, just small items, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so he gets into the house, probably somewhere between 15 minutes and half an hour later, Meredith comes home, possibly unexpectedly. I mean, she didn't even know when she was going to come home. Mm -hmm. Now, Rudy's story is that they were going to hook up. That was the plan. But her friends say she was not dressed for a hookup. <laughs> she was not talking about anybody she was tired she wanted to study like there really isn't any evidence that they were going to hook up that night um I really think it was just a break-in and he saw an opportunity and was in a really bad place in his life and things just got very very bad one of the best 
defenses for Amanda Knox that I heard, and I think it was my body language guy, was that Meredith was a martial arts student. And they were the same size. The two women were the same size. And she would have definitely been able to ward off a female assailant, especially with the same weight and size. That's a fairly good point, yeah. And that's why- But you know, Candy, at the same time, I'm- I can't help but think of the scene in the most recent Tarantino film um, involving the character of Bruce Lee. Do you remember that? Yes, where, I do. Yes, where I he do. Gets, he gets the crap beat out of him. Right, right. Well, also, I think that all of this goes out the window for me if someone was had a personality disorder and had um, maybe like a sociopath um, they wouldn't have ever shown signs of that kind of aggression. They would have hidden it through their lives. They may have played mind games with other people, which narcissists and sociopaths get off on doing that. They don't always escalate to violence. Um, and it may not have been, I could see how someone in could have had a jealous fit or an emotional decision very quickly or a conversation at a bar and one thing led to another and someone who was um, going to be a robber or a rapist would have volunteered to, hey, whatever. I think you've kind of freaked me out with the um, comment about the serial killer and the satanic images in his apartment. Um, I think it's a shame they, they ever went that way because I think it, would, it, it, it puts so much sympathy on, on everyone involved. I have two questions. One, Amanda Knox fingered a black man for this crime. And it doesn't sit well with me. His name was Patrick Lumumba. And um, he went to prison for jail for two weeks because of her, lost his business, lost his life, had to leave and go to Poland. He's he's never been apologized to. And Amanda Knox goes around doing victims like innocence projects and such, but she herself (laughs) is part of a process of putting guilt on, applying guilt on somebody else. Yes, and I think that's a fascinating aspect of the case. Um, when I first came into it, I didn't really know why she had implicated him because he had a rock solid alibi. He was at mm-hmm. his bar all evening. He was with people, he was seen, he was working the bar, he was with a friend, a professor. Um, so I couldn't understand, exa- at first, you know, I had the question like, why him? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I found out there were, t- my initial impression was that she was a genius that the police were pressuring her to give up another name. So she gave them a name that she, of someone she knew would have a rock solid alibi. Oh, wow. This you are so, boss. you are so thoughtful she, and, and yeah, nice. Right? You but really, then because <laughs> I am like, wow. No, thoughtful I, and nice, there you go. Yes, and me, I'm like, uh, it's just another thing that doesn't sit well with me. Well, and I mean, I, listen, also assholes could be innocent too. Yeah. So I have to keep well, telling true. myself that yeah. maybe assholes, and I'm sorry, Amanda Knox, I well, don't mean as, you, allegedly assholes. Yeah. As, as well, I yeah. think, you know, you can't really take, you can't really put a lot of credence on Amanda Knox's profile after, like today, really. I mean, if I were, if I were accused of a crime I didn't do, and it took years to exonerate me, yeah. I would be really obnoxious. Oh, I'd be the most obnoxious absolutely. person you could imagine. Absolutely. Right. I don't think she's obnoxious. 
and this is yeah so when today, i when she, I when she first obnoxious today no 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 i think People she's change. icy cold <laughs> right and you know <laughs> like this, a... <laughs> I, another good parallel with this case would be uh the azaria chamberlain case in australia okay uh famously the uh i can't remember the the lady's name but don't uh, tell Mrs. me it's a dingo ate my baby yes yes oh exactly. my god <laughs> <laughs> The, the dingo- what's the only crime i know in australia i mean aside <laughs> from the kelly game okay. the dingo case we all know the dingo yeah, case yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know as azaria chamber chamberlain's mother um came across as so she was just done by the time she got into court she was angry she was nasty and right. people just couldn't stand her right they were like you know she had to have done it because just look at her face Right. Look how mean she looks. Look how she's snapping right. at the judge. Look how right. she's slouching down in her seat. Look how she's looking so contemptuous of the proceedings. No, well, maybe she was, she was angry for very good reasons. Well, exactly. I mean, she was falsely accused of a murder that didn't even occur. There right. honestly was a dingo attack. Right. And, and this is yeah. That, that's that's a later. good point. I I don't see um um. I don't think that's it. There's, there's, I guess the disconnect that I feel, because I, I had hoped when I watched the documentary, I would feel, you know, oh, you know, you were just a suspicious person and you, you aren't very trusting. Why did Meredith's parents believe she was responsible? I think to this day, they still feel she was involved. And I want to say involved. I don't want to say responsible. How right. about if I qualify right. and say she was in the room? Right. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, her, I read her her dad's biography. John Kircher wrote a book called Meredith. Oh, wow. and he did explain that, and it's exactly what you just brought up about the karate. His, she had been involved in karate as a teenager. And he had the naive belief, as a lot of parents do, that if your child takes a self-defense course and is pretty good at it, they will be safe. They will be able to defend themselves against, you know, adult male attackers. Mm. But the thing is, if there's an element of surprise, you know, you're in your own home, you feel safe, you're, there's some kind of blitz style attack from a guy who's much bigger than you, you're not necessarily going to ever get the upper hand, no matter how much judo or Krav Maga or karate, you know, you know, that's yes. especially if the person is much bigger and stronger than you are. True, true. Yes. And that would explain the bloodshed. Yes, she did fight. She did fight. Bless her heart. She Um, had defensive wounds. She was a scrappy girl. She really fought. So why do why then is was there a reason he was saying that? I mean, other than he's talking about his loss, did he still feel that? Did he feel confusion about who the guilty person was? I think that um, the family is very confused. Meredith's family is very Mm -hmm. confused about what happened. They've Mm -hmm. never really gotten a coherent story because there never has been one. Right. The only coherent story that there is really is that one intruder got into the house and killed their daughter and that it was in part sexually motivated. Right. But they've heard so many different stories. They've heard five, six, seven different accounts of how and why this happened. They don't know what to think anymore. And I do they hear it only from the prosecutor, or do they hear it from Meredith's friends? Their lawyer um, funneled information to them directly from Manini. I see. So they were getting it directly from, indirectly Um, from the prosecutor through their lawyer. 
And that's really the only information they had to rely on other than what the UK tabloid press was putting out, which of course was garbage. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, they didn't really get good information. Has there been any indication as to what Manini's motivation might've been to bring in the satanic panic aspect? Well, you know, I think it's something he really believes. I also think he knows that it's a surefire attention getter. I think he's a bit of a publicity hound. The baby gets and I, money in it and it funding to the police. And it does, yeah. It makes and them look like they're doing yeah. something, yeah. And it's it's exciting, it's exotic. And he is a really big fan of detective fiction. He loves McGray and, and Sherlock Holmes. Right. And I think he fancies himself as something of a profiler and something as an expert. Um, one of the first things he noticed at the crime scene was that the quilt that Meredith had on her bed was pulled up over her body. And he decided right at the scene Mm -hmm. that a woman must have done this because only a woman would do that which well, is see, not true that's it's very true. that's a strange supposition uh, i thought that it was a, I, I remember that too that stood out to me as well and um I, i'm not opposed to it i think um, most I criminologists concur though that it's it's something that anyone would do that you just feel guilty so you cover the body or it's a depersonalization thing sometimes too um it's to kind of minimize the victim like just cover them up well one thing i more than a female i would take it as familiarity personally yes i would Which take it i would take it as a sign of familiarity yeah. um and to me my gut which is why i'm not on a jury would indicate to me a friend or someone who knew her which, because which, you're yeah, respecting a naked body if their body was naked or exposed you're uncomfortable leaving it that way because you wouldn't want yourself to be left that way. Yeah. John um, Douglas. Know, oh, sorry. Go, no, go. I was just going to say, I know spouses. It, it's not uncommon for a spouse when they kill their partner to cover them. That or is make, very common. You know, yeah, yeah. It's very common in child murders where a and parent the, kills a child. Yeah. And stabbings, multiple stabbings are usually done by familiarity too. Yes. So again. I don't think that the prosecutor was wrong in his... I believe he had an intuition and that is not unacceptable in law enforcement, but must be backed up by evidence. Yeah, I, it's not, I believe it's some not... of that was on, I think that's partly what, why he went down a wrong path. Right. Possibly. It's not totally out to lunch. The idea right. that, you know, the, the, the killer did this because he had some pity for the victim or wanted her to have some dignity in death mm -hmm. where he, where he got confused, I think, is because he's not really a criminologist. He's a prosecutor. Right. And Correct. he's not at a lot of these crime scenes, or right. all of them. Right. So John Douglas weighed in on this as well, the FBI, former yeah. FBI profiler. Yes. And he said that given the nature of the crime, the, the brutality of the attack, mm. he didn't really think that this was a case where there was any pity or sympathy or sense of wanting to shield the victim in death. Wow. It was more like a depersonalization thing, or maybe... Okay the killer hadn't finished ransacking the room and didn't really want this gross, you know, right. murder scene staring him in the face while he's mm. doing that. Right, this uncomfortably naked body next to me or whatever, yeah. Exactly, so yes. there's multiple interpretations here, but Manini was very insistent on his that only a woman could do this. I see. Which is very odd because men do it too. Men who kill their children right. do that Correct. as well. Correct, yes. But it, misogyny does creep in here at every turn because we have this persistent idea of Knox being an absolute sex-crazed fiend, able to manipulate men, 
um, using her body to manipulate people by doing yoga poses mm-hmm. <laughs> while waiting. But even even if that was true, that's that maybe she's a shitty human being, but not necessarily <laughs> a murderer. Right. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. I don't get, I have to say that Amanda Knox, when she was younger, reminded me a lot of my niece, kind of outdoorsy and okay. smart and not really into, you know, beautiful, but not into her appearance, like not playing it up too much. Just, you know, wearing nice, casual, comfy clothes. Okay. She reminded me a lot of my niece. And like my niece, I, there was a certain reserve. Mm-hmm. Like she's, she's not the kind of person that you're going to get to know right away. She might have a big personality, but to get to her innermost feelings, you're probably going to have to know her for quite a while. And you're not going to see her break down in tears or have a lot of big emotional outbursts or anything like that. She seemed like a very self-contained sort of person to me. Right. And I guess, you know how I read that? I read that as entitlement, yeah. money, money, and that you're better than other people. It's so funny. I see it as contempt and, um, and that how dare you think I would ever do something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so it's just really funny for me. It, it, it comes to a kind of a class battle. In a way, there's a, there's a feeling of, of um, you know, I was really surprised. There's so many people who feel this idea, we got our girl back. They even use that in the movie Stillwater, but they, you know, there was that feeling of like, don't take our girl, our American princess, and you know, we need to get her back and protect her. Yeah. And um, you know, it's I guess maybe be, it's just off-putting. Oh, I it's very much yeah. Definitely. There was also something very interesting. I was just I, I'm not a you know, just I can't explain this, but I noticed that twice in the at two two sentence hearings, I believe she wore green. I thought that was a very odd choice. And then I noticed in an interview, Why? this has been a woman who was charged with being jealous. No. <laughs> I just thought, wow, yeah, that's very strange <laughs> that, you know, hmm. would you not think about the kind of colors you were wearing? I also thought it was very strange. <laughs> I, I would never think her, of that. I, I would, it would never I guess to me. me and the Italian prosecutor, he read something in the quilt. <laughs> Her clothes were a huge point of interest at the trial. You know, why is she wearing a sweatshirt? Why is she doing this? Why is she? And I don't see her as not knowing that she's beautiful. I think she's very aware that she's beautiful. And I think that's off-putting too. So I I felt very different. And I think that's cool. I I would say that many people I've talked to, they believe she was innocent. And I feel like I'm the monster for thinking she's guilty. No, it's not monstrous because we that's how she was presented. I mean, that's how she no, I think it was I think it's going with my own gut. I yeah. really don't feel as presented. I feel like I've really revisited many times, thinking, thinking, looking, uh, kind of looking at what evidence was there, how much there was there, things like that. I, I mean, that's just I didn't really know about the satanic thing. I didn't know that until I watched the documentary where he's talking about it. I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And <laughs> so why did he bother with that? Yeah. I, yeah. I think you both nailed it when you we, we started talking was when you said that it's a great way, just like any fairy tale, is we do want to be able to warn our children, don't go to another country, don't travel. Be careful. You have money, people will kidnap you. Uh, people will, you know, blame you for crimes because you're an outsider. It's not unlike 
our movie, The Wicker Man, in fact. And, uh, you know, we want to sacrifice people to uh, fix society. And definitely the prosecutor seemed to didn't, he definitely seemed to have that. He did say he was a very strong believer in the passion play. So, you know, and that's the most famous sacrifice of all, isn't it? Sacrificial yeah. story, right? Yes, indeed. I think that, um, I can't say that I've ever seen this story as a class struggle though. Uh, just because mm. the girls were from such similar backgrounds. Mm. They were from mm. very comfortable middle-class families, but I wouldn't say that um, they had a huge amount of advantages. The only truly privileged person in this story is is Raphael. He actually did come right. from money and had quite right. a lot of support. Right. Um, Rudy Gaudet, you don't want to say it, but I almost pity him. I almost do because he had immigrated with his dad when he was five years old. Mm -hmm. And his dad was so busy working as a bricklayer, even though he was an educated man and on the Ivory Coast where they came from, he just couldn't, you know, keep money in his pocket. It was very hard. He had a he had another family, a second family in Italy. He had a family that he was still supporting back on the Ivory Coast. Right. And he had Rudy with them. And I think he really, really struggled. And when he when he was uh, when Rudy was about 15 or 16, he went back to the Ivory Coast just for a visit. But unfortunately for him, that was when civil war was breaking out and he could not leave. They would not reissue a visa for him at that time. So he had to stay for something like four months. And during that time, uh, Rudy just didn't really want to stay with his stepmom. He was very rootless. It was it was a tough upbringing for him. And. You know, by the time the murder occurred, he really was making his income through break-ins and stealing very small items that we would consider of not very much value. But this was all he had. He was behind on his rent. Um, he never really had legal status in Italy because that's very hard to do. Um, so he was, he was kind of a man without a country in a lot of ways. He had lived in Perugia his whole life or most of his life. And just really was still kind of an outsider and didn't have family and didn't have any support. He was being pressured by his landlady at the time of the murder to supply her with a letter of employment, but he didn't have any employment at the time. His last job had been in August. The murder occurred in November. He was, was very telling. He was and not doing well. Ironically, it makes the situation sound a little bit more like the United States. I guess really I want does. to reframe the word class. Let me put it this way, um, cultural class. If there was um, the competition, and, and you will hear it if you watch the documentary, one of the other, um, I think it's the detective. Um, he explains how Perugula was one of the sources of, of study of law and justice. And they are very insulted that the Americans are looking down on them as if they are like Stone Age yes. or, you know, don't know anything about law. Yes. And so yes. class is not the right word. I I'm sure there's a better word. I want to say something like cultural struggle between two countries, the, I, the world of the United yes. States conquering the world and looking down on the old ways that's, of Europe. That's pretty, yes. pretty common. Yeah. Yes. And yes. I, this is something that disturbed me so much about the case, too, because like I said earlier, I don't think that the Italian legal system is to blame for any of this. We have the exact same in carriages of justice in 
Canada and in America. And for much the same reasons, you know, people mm -hmm. lock onto suspects when they're investigating a crime and it's very hard to unlock. Yes, it, that is true. Mm, that is yeah. true. That's fair. So I, I absolutely do not blame the Italian. Uh, this word superstition came up a lot too in early reports. Mm -hmm. People saying that the prosecutors were superstitious and Italy is superstitious and they're very prone to this kind of conspiratorial thinking. I absolutely disagree. I don't think that that is a common trait. I think Menini is in his own, he's doing his own little thing. Right. <laughs> I don't think that he's necessarily emblematic of how Italian prosecutors think. Um, but there were problems with, with other prosecutions in that area around that time. Um, while Amanda and, and Raphael were there and were studying and all of this was going down, um, the, the lady who would become the co-prosecutor on the case, Kamadi, she was trying another case where a group of, of young students were called out as anarcho-terrorists mm -hmm. and were held without charge for many, many years, mm -hmm. uh, not because they were caught committing any crime, but because someone affiliated with them had committed a crime by sending a threat through the mail. This was a group of kids in a, an, an adjacent community. I don't recall, Spoleto? I could be getting the name wrong, but um, this was another city in the region that was a very quiet area, but there was a lot of kerfuffle about a high rise that was gonna be erected. Um, apparently this was a development that a lot of people opposed and a group of like communist affiliated kids got together and protested it. And they were all rounded up and arrested because there had been a mail threat mm -hmm. to one of the developers or something like that. So there were definitely cases here where um, justice was really not being served. <laughs> right. So, but again, that doesn't really have anything to do with the Italian justice system. These are things that occur all over the world and in the US and in Canada. So we definitely can't point to Italy and say, oh, they're so backwards. They haven't figured anything out. I mean, no, I mean, it's also not that unusual in America to have somebody who's a, a, a major official being off doing things based on all kinds of wacky beliefs. We just have Absolutely. to look at um, America under Trump and, and what bizarre behavior <laughs> so many people he hired got involved with. Yes. yes. And Reagan used to um, look at astrology before he made decisions. Right, right. right. With, so Trump, with Trump, you had, you know, the worst kind of conspiracy theorist, the kind that never actually examines the conspiracy theories he believes in. He was a died in the wool birther, but he mm. didn't really have any justification for that. He just right. believed it. Right. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a worldwide issue. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the headlines that attracted you? You said superstitious, and I thought that was, so that would be the American press calling Italy superstitious. Um, what were some of the right. tabloid stories that you, think we haven't really dealt with because we are in the you know if anyone was worried about fake news today and they thought it was bad some of the old headlines were pretty bad you they said or you said orgy really she was killed from an orgy do you have yep. any other notes left around yep um so the italian press didn't really get as dark as the uk <laughs> press did the uk tabloid <laughs> press as far as i'm concerned and rupert murdoch's whole uh, -huh. stick, uh just some of the worst journalism that's ever existed in my view Her. We got into this a little bit with the Son of Sam stuff, how yeah. Rupert Murdoch was kind of driving that narrative and, and putting a lot of junk out there. 
And that's really what it was. It was junk news. Once they ran out of headlines, they would just come up with anything. Mm-hmm. Once they kind of got bored with the orgy stuff and the sex game stuff and the ritualistic stuff, then they moved on to, well, maybe it was uh, somebody she went to a Halloween party with. Maybe it was this guy in the scream mask. Uh, nice. And you know, if he's following the movie <laughs> Scream, then we're all in danger because in that movie, everybody dies. You know? <laughs> right. I think right. it was the Daily Mail that went with that. It's uh, just, just really bizarre headlines. Um, and it wasn't only the headlines, it was also the internet uh-huh. community. It was social media. There were competing websites. Uh, there was you know, several set up to support Amanda Knox None that I know of to support Raphael. I, I, again, I feel kind of bad for the guy. He's sort of always left out of these things. But there were pro-Meredith and anti-Meredith and anti-Amanda and pro-Amanda. And it, it got absolutely vicious. You had reporters undermining each other. You had a couple of reporters, uh, English language reporters, actually, who did think that Amanda was guilty. Mm-hmm. And you look at their stuff and you kind of have to wonder, like, did they really believe that or were they just trying to because some of them were like rome bureau chiefs and stuff or were they just trying to stay in good with the italians because they didn't want to you know alienate their sources and their contacts in that country right Uh, it just got weird (laughs) (laughs) so weird yeah so i guess this is just going to always give us lessons you know i'm sure that people do study this in school about from media relations and communications we absolutely should it would be a great case study for how media shapes our perception of uh, justice overseas Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. that we can't see i mean let's be honest none of us can sit down and read the trial transcript i can't right right i know very little italian so really i do have to rely on the media as my filter and listen to interviews and I'm surprised somebody hasn't transcribed that or translated that. They probably have. Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing there probably are some translated, uh, at least excerpts floating around. But yeah, it's been a while since I'd, I had to kind of revisit this case because I had taken a break from it after the final. um, Did we get back into it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It never dies. It's the case that just comes back. Well, you know, and I I think it is. It's, It's the power of a story about women. I mean, yes. we want more movies about women. We, well, we go to the theaters. We, when you make stories about us, we go see them. And when you write stories about us, we go see them. And um, I think it's that compelling. It's, it is like a, an old movie in some we, weird way or a horror movie. I think Hitchcock would have had a, if he was alive, he would have had a heyday. <laughs> and I do understand, and I understand completely why um, McCarthy, Tom McCarthy wrote the script. Uh, it was it's it's kind of adventurous for him to do it um Mm -hmm. we never see the the woman lost and he comes up with a way of portraying how a woman might find herself killing somebody yeah and how that how it could look um i i wouldn't have said that i i was inspired by it i don't think if i had written the script but but maybe i would maybe i I, I also wouldn't put it past anyone in the hollywood establishment to decide to make a movie that they say is inspired by a famous case <laughs> in order to gain publicity from that. I mean, that's no. that's the rigor, right? <laughs> that's right. Get those seats, get those seats in there, right? The seats and the seats. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. If you if I could count the times I've seen inspired by a true story, and then right. it's really really loosely inspired. So. Right, and I I wonder I, I it has to be to get people to listen to because otherwise it wouldn't really matter. You're not doing it directly. Um. I guess it just helped. I think some people like realism. They really yeah. like that. And they, that makes them feel like well, maybe it's more authentic. There people is a, also like recognition. People like to be able to, to recognize something that they know. They that like it true. in painting. I want to recognize yes, um, yes. a picture of a cottage in the right, mountains. Right. And that's where I'd like to be now. So I'm <laughs> going to like that painting. Yeah. In the same way, um, they want to be able to recognize something, know something about the story. Oh, I saw the news reports about the move, <laughs> about the real situation that this was inspired from. Let's see what we can learn about that situation by watching this movie. Right. Yes, right. I think there's definitely people love representational art and they love to recognize that. Yes. You know, be an expert on it already before you even go into the movie theater, you know, because they read yeah. that article in the Telegraph about the demented sex orgy. <laughs> That's right. right. I mean, especially if people are going to go in to see the movie and already have an opinion. Well, that's great for sales. Absolutely. Right. Well, I, sure. I do think that Stillwater did make me feel like I learned something from it. You know, I felt a very, I felt pretty profound watching it. And by the time it ends, there, it, it was a very, very thoughtful film. Definitely there was middle parts I didn't like. There was a few dialogue I didn't like. And that could be just because of the, um, maybe I just didn't think the pacing was quite right. But I think it also tricked me to not think it was a suspenseful film. And then it got very suspenseful. <laughs> what I didn't like about the film was after it was over in a sense, and yes. Matt Damon is back in America yes. and somebody makes some comment about uh, the French woman he was in, involved with. And he's just, he makes some offhanded comment about, well, that's life. Oh and, yeah. And it was just so blunt yeah. and dismissive. And yeah. I thought, well, they developed that that relationship throughout the entire movie, and they were quite willing to just say goodbye to that in the snap of a finger. Oh, you know how I took that, Eugene? Mm -hmm. I took that as on purpose to show I thought it was a metaphor for how dismissive the culture is. Um, dismissive of Europe's history, dismissive of, I took it back to that struggle. I thought for me, the movie was really about that struggle between, um, you see, he couldn't even work in the United States, but he was hired in, in Europe. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. So I thought there was a lot of, for me, the movie was mostly about the battle between that, that society and this society and and how and it was really the, the crumbling of the USA. And mm -hmm. I thought it was pretty interesting to use that kind of a murder story as in tandem with the fall of empire and the inability for the United States to look after itself. It's, it, it's, it's a foreign invader. It goes to other mm -hmm. countries to get education because it's rich and then it can't handle it when the reality of life comes around and has to retreat back to its uh, isolationism or provincialism or its own society. So I, in that way, I feel that that's really what, I'm pretty sure the writer might've said, oh, it's about Amanda Knox because he didn't want to look like, he, mm. I don't even know if he's an American writer. I, I, I'll have to go look, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was a European author, but I, I think he was American. <laughs> 
Your you know, point about work is 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 I think right on because even when he talks about work, what he did in America, he talks about I make holes. Yes, he, yes. He's so dismissive yes. of of that job having any meaning in his life. Yes, uh, he just he just talks about it as well holes. It's meaningless. It's empty and. Um, he's able to find some meaning while trying to exonerate his daughter um, and getting involved in this relationship. I thought that was a very interesting story. Me too. And I think that, you know, Sarah, just to sort of fill you in, is that he has an equally kind of mundane job, except that it's giving him, uh, he's not even, at for a few months, he doesn't even talk to his daughter. That has erased from his life. And he's actually all of a sudden got a society and a culture he lives in. And he's got people around him. He's a, he's, yes, a exactly. via, he's a viable person in society. And he was not bad in the state. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's a lot of that going on. And so why are we so dismissive between well, these countries? And, and also, yeah. Candy, yes. um, we know that by his the character's admission, he wasn't a very good father. Yeah, but he's a very good father figure to the young girl, yes. um, the daughter of the woman he becomes involved with. He's that's a beautiful relationship that's developed. Right, and I think that there's a hint there that you know true conservatism isn't a capital C. It is looking at tradition and history and learning from it. And he was able to replay almost a reincarnation of his parenthood with that new family. It backfires. <laughs> it totally I... backfires. And, um, you know, I think that, I think you're going to enjoy watching it compared to the Amanda Knox story, Sarah, because to the, you know, in a weird way that he got that rich characterization from something that it, it they don't, it's not the same, but it's the same. Yeah, it, it sounds like he's trying to tell Quite a few stories here yes, and i, I yes. am looking forward to seeing it yes. um the director said because he was asked you know yeah, did yeah. you base this just on amanda knox and he said well actually no i really wanted to he delved into uh the people who voted for trump he wanted to get into the minds of people who felt so disenfranchised and so mm -hmm. lost in their own country that they thought trump could be their ace in the hole he could be their guy yeah, uh, he wanted to get into the minds of people who were who were that low on the ladder that they honestly wow. thought, "Wow, Trump is our way out of this." That's really I, I had that feeling while I watched it. Without him being so, it was very very subtly done, and I think yeah. in that way he did a beautiful job. And ouch, ouch, yeah, because the characters themselves say they are fucked up. <laughs> and I mean, uh, sorry to Amanda Knox, she shouldn't be insulted because they played with her accidental, uh, you know, her miscarriage of justice. Um, it's an insult to her on another level. Yeah. Not, not from her, um, when she that she went to prison or something, just on. from those contemptive smiles that she shared with the camera. I would like to uh, ask our listeners uh, for your opinion. Yes. Um, what are your ideas around the Amanda Knox story, around mm -hmm. Stillwater and the relationship between uh, the Amanda Knox story and this film? Uh, we'd like to hear from you. We'd like to get your feedback and you can, uh, you can send it to us at theagency.podcast at gmail.com. 
And Sarah, you are an inspiration to me. I, I love listening to you talk. I love your perspectives. And, you know, we met blogging and it's just such a compliment to the world of blogging that, um, you know, you've been able to express yourself and you, you continually challenge me and thank you for humoring me while I'm taking the bad guy role here. No, I love it. I love hearing from your <laughs> side and, and being able to work my brain muscles. I absolutely love it. Uh, I do want to have just one little please, parting, please, parting please piece of advice. Take your time. I think that there are so many lessons, uh, both things that were included in Stillwater and and lessons that we can take from this. Uh, but the one thing I do want to say to people, and full disclosure, yes, I do work as a paralegal, but this has nothing to do with that. Okay. Uh, I really just encourage people, if you are ever questioned about any crime, uh, even if you know that you're innocent and you know that there's no incriminating evidence or you think there's no incriminating evidence, please do not talk to the police without a lawyer present. Get your and that's lawyer why first. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> it's the strongest piece of advice. Go ahead and study abroad. Go out, have your adventures. But for the love of God, no matter where you are in the world, never talk to the police without a lawyer present. I absolutely agree. That is That's some good advice. <laughs> so Sarah, thanks very much for coming back on the podcast. We appreciate it. And, uh, and you know, we'll be uh, asking you in the future to join us again. Absolutely. And it's been great talking to you both. Bye.